Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 21, Rowdy Roman Revelry, Marozia's Pornocracy. Before we get into the episode, I just want to set your minds at ease about the title. There's not going to be any explicit content. Pornocracy was actually a name that some commentators have used to describe this period of Italian history. No need to send the children, who I imagine are avid listeners of A History of Italy, out of the room. So, we've been talking a lot about Rome over many episodes, about the Papal States, various sieges and coronations. However, we haven't had a look inside the walls to see exactly what was going on. That's what we're going to do in this episode. We could say that the last two good popes we're going to get for a bit were Nicholas I from 858 to 867 and Giovanni John VIII from 867 to 872. By good, I mean that actually tried to do something vaguely related to the saving of Christian souls and upholding the teachings of the gospel. After them, the church fell into the same dissolution, disunity and chaos that gripped all of Italy. We mentioned that as the feudal system took hold, things went local. Everyone had their own little church with larger dioceses in the cities and everyone was off doing their own thing, often with the secular power intervening and nominating church representatives who could best serve them. Values such as celibacy and frugal life outside of the monasteries were laughable. But once again I digress. We said we'd go to Rome and so here we go. Just a note, we're going to be looking at one of the most powerful families in Rome for almost half a century. But as you listen and maybe start wondering how they got away with what they did, you need to remember that Everyone in Rome was seeped in the deepest debauchery and corruption, with lavish living, eating, drinking, and all sorts of very naughty things happening in the bedrooms. Well, everywhere, really. But anyway, you get the picture. The plebs of Rome were quite happy with the situation because the nobles, both ecclesiastical and non, were very generous with their wild spending, and when members of the clergy would die, leaving an empty palace, the people could just walk in and loot to their heart's content. So keep that in mind. Almost everyone was in on the game. Another note, as is often the case, we're going to be juggling names a lot, and I don't expect you to remember them all, or I don't. Just remember that the time between the 9th and 10th century in Italy, and particularly in Rome, was every man and woman for themselves, getting hold of as much as they could. Okay? So, no more digression, I promise. And no more messing around. Here we go. Rome. Really. 
The year was 897, and Rome was in full swing, ready for a great ceremony to honour the powerful Duke of Spoleto, Lamberto, and his mother, Agiltrude. This was obviously before Lamberto fell off his horse and smashed his head in, as we saw in the last episode in his dealings with Berengarius of Friuli, who will pop up again in the next episode. However, during the ceremony, there were other nobles who stole the show from the Spoletans. In particular, the curiosity of the people of Rome was captured by a tall, strong knight with an oddly square beard. Under his tunic, they could see the flashing of his armour, and his breastplate bore the black tower on a red background that was the emblem of the Tuscolo family. This man was Teofilatto in Italian, Theophylact in English, Count of Tusculum, but let's just call him Theo because Theophylact is quite a mouthful. In time, he would change his coat of arms to get a more Roman feel with a gold eagle on a checkered black and red background. By his side was his enchantingly beautiful wife, Theodora, not the long-dead Byzantine empress, obviously, and his two lovely little daughters, Theodora Jr. and Maria. Little Maria was only around six years old, but already looking older than her years, helped by a little bit of makeup, and was known as Mariozza, which in time would become Marozia. She particularly caught the attention of a young man called Sergius, who could not stop sneaking looks at her, and little Marozia just looked right back at him. It would not be long before our young Sergius would become Pope, but that would not stop him wanting to stare at Marozia, and also go quite a bit further when they were both older. Marozia's mother, Theodora, on the other hand, could be seen chatting amicably with another clergyman, Giovanni da Tosignano, modern-day Imola near Bologna. He would also, in time, become a pope. Incidentally, he was also Theodora's lover, or one of them anyway. Now, the papacy of these two guys was for the near future. The pope at the time, who had set up the whole party for the Spoleto faction, was Stephen VI, the papal expression of the Spoletan powerhouse. Now, the Spoletans had a bone to pick. They were steaming. They wanted revenge. But who were they steaming at? Well, do you remember Pope Formosus, the one who first crowned Lamberto Spoleto as king of Italy and then ratted him out to King Arnulf of Corinthia, who came down and laid siege to Rome, and then a rabbit won the siege? Then Arnulf sent Lamberto running away and freed Formosus? Well, Formosus was the one they were annoyed with. There was only one teeny tiny little issue that stood between the Spoletans and their revenge, and that was the fact that Formosus had been dead for the past ten months. No matter. In these times when power and scandalous wealth got to people's heads, even death was not an obstacle to revenge. 
Upon the friendly and encouraging insistence of the Duchess Mother of Spoleto, Pope Stephen VI simply had the partly decomposed and mummified body of the ex-Pope dragged up, dressed in papal attire, and stuck before a commission. A mild-mannered deacon was appointed to defend the cadaver. Every time he tried to speak in defense of the zombie Pope, he was drowned out by booing and taunting. Would you believe it, for Moses was found guilty of trumped-up charges. He first had the papal regalia stripped off of him. Then three fingers of his right hand were chopped off, the ones that Pope used to impart blessings. Then he had his head cut off and his body was chucked in the Tiber. That'll show him, only it didn't because he was already dead. And all the clergymen he had appointed were declared deposed and had to ask to be reconfirmed. This event is a pretty good scene-setter for the climate that had set in. Not even death could stop the cruelty, violence and thirst for power that dominated early 10th century Italy. Stephen VI didn't last long after that. A popular rebellion soon had him in jail. He didn't last long there either, for he was strangled. His successor, Theodore II, lasted just long enough to have Formosus' body found before he also died. His successor, John IX, actually got round to rehabilitating Formosus before he too died in the year 900. The reign of his successor, Benedict IV, saw the real consolidation of the Tuscolo family power between 900 and 903. Along then came Leo V, but he only got to stick around for a few months before he was overthrown by a certain Christophorus, who was actually an anti-pope and not counted as a pope, and the whole business was then set to rest when along came an old friend from the party we opened with, Sergius, who became Sergius III. He was a violent man, often out for a fight, and had been a great promoter of the trial against Formosus's body. His papacy marked the real start of what has gone down in history as the Iron Age of the papacy, or the Dark Age of the papacy, or even the Pornocracy. By this time, Theophylact, Theo, had gained quite a bit of influence. He was the Vestararius, controlling the church finances. He also held the title of Senator Romanorum, Senator of the Romans, Consul et Dux, Consul and Duke. The family was generous when it was convenient to further their cause, giving to the poor and having churches rebuilt. His wife, Theodora, was also generous and useful. She would, shall we say, spend time with men who could help the family fortunes, and Marozia grew up learning from mum. Indeed, both women were very friendly with Pope Sergius III. They would enjoy themselves in the Pope's private rooms and also in, in lots of other rooms. Now, they weren't too bothered about keeping things quiet, and there was some opposition, but, well, they didn't really bother much. Plus, the opposers had the continuing habit of ending up dead.
they set up their own little independent reign of terror. There was no need to even pretend to want an emperor ruling from afar. Those opposers who didn't end up dead were easily convinced by the friendly attentions of Theodora and Marozia. When Marozia turned seventeen, the new Duke of Spoleto, Alberic, came to visit the city of Rome. Many of the local nobles were rather fearful of having such a powerful man in the city, but not Theo. He made sure he made friends with the Duke. As soon as possible, and got himself invited to a banquet, remembering to bring his stunningly beautiful daughter Marozia with him. Things went exactly as planned. The moment Alberic saw her, he fell head over heels and asked to marry her on the spot. Father Theo couldn't be more pleased. You can almost imagine him saying, "Well, your dukiness, I see you like my daughter." Uh, it's no problem with me if you want to marry her. Ah,、uh, just、uh, one thing. She's um expecting a child from Pope Sergius the Third, but、uh, you don't mind that, do you? Evidently, it didn't matter, and the couple were soon married. They were in a bit of a hurry, after all. You could say it was a weird version of a shotgun wedding or a large sword wedding, in which the groom was not really the one in trouble. Nobody was really in trouble at all, because everybody was doing everything they wanted anyway. One thing Marozia's new husband did do was set up the home in Rome on the Aventine Hill, as far away from the Pope as he could, because, as we say in Italian, fidarsi è bene, non fidarsi è meglio. Trusting someone is good, but not trusting them is better. Her son Giovanni John. Was born soon after the wedding. Now, if we want to somewhat help Marozia's reputation, we could say that what we know about her comes from a historian called Liutprand of Cremona, a bishop who lived around thirty to forty years after the events we're talking about, and who was not a fan at all. So it may all have been just nasty rumors. In any case. As the year nine ten rolled around, Marozia's family, and more and more Marozia herself, were the ones pushing the buttons. Let's leave them there for now, happily pushing their buttons and imposing their will on increasingly large parts of central Italy. One could expect that now that Marozia was happily married. In the next episode, we'll see her happily settling down to a quiet life as a loving and devoted wife. Not a chance. But for now, thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thank you, as always, to our regular donators or donors, Sen and Sean.、Uh, please remember that if you want to get in touch with questions or comments or protests, hopefully not, you can send an email. Hello at ahistoryofitaly dot com at the same URL ahistoryofitaly dot com. You can click through to our social media on Facebook and YouTube. You can have a look at some timelines or maps to help you navigate our complicated history. And now you can click through to our sponsor, which is me. I have put up a link to Amazon where you can order a copy 
of my new book about the Chelsea Hotel in New York, which has absolutely nothing to do with Italian history. But if you've been thinking of helping to support the program, this is a good way to do so and get a hold of a good read, or better, to get a hold of a read. So if you want to go and do that, I'll be very grateful. Until next time, thank you very much to everyone for listening, and arrivederci. Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.